Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that one, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces And have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that in these brief moments, there's the temptation for our minds to wander so far away from this passage. But we pray and ask that he who has ears, that you would give him ears to hear truly what you say to your servants. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I simply have one word for you this morning. One word which I have been mulling over, contemplating, thinking, one word that has haunted me over this last week. And that word is very important to the section of Mark that we've been in. It's the word antagonistically. It was the word that I could not get out no matter how hard I tried last week. Antagonistically. Antagonistically. So you better believe this last week I spent, if nothing else, the entire week mulling over, uh, parsing, defining contemplating, and yes, pronouncing the word antagonistically. So, yes, thank you. Now, why do I do this? Because it was not just revenge on the word itself, but because I think it is the very heart here of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the elders, and the priests. 
they've all been coming against Jesus with these questions and these questions and these questions. And they were not honest questions. They've been antagonistically asking him these questions because they're hostile. They're unfriendly towards him. They stand opposed to Jesus of Nazareth. And where we are coming out of last week's showdown, today we have another question coming at Jesus, but we sense and we read that something has changed here. In this exchange between the scribe and Christ, we don't get the sense that this question is being antagonistically asked. I think there is a a shift in tone at this moment. With the question being asked, teacher, which commandment is the most important of all? And we will unfold our time here this morning as we try to consider this. What is it that is central to the Christian life? And then we'll see two versions of that being lived out. What is central in the Christian life? And then two versions of that being lived out. First, what is it that is central in the Christian life? We could ask it this way. What is it that is foundational or basic to being a Christian? And that would be easy enough to answer. I would say that to become a disciple of Christ, to become a follower of Jesus is the most central thing. But then just under that, you'd say, okay, to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple. But then if that is the most central thing, what is it that's just under that? What what would you say is the most central thing for a disciple? And then to get at this, you would be tempted to consider all sorts of things. And this is important to ask because many people are tempted or assume that this basic foundational thing to being a disciple is something that you can pass up, something that you can overlook. Do you know those people who, when you like to teach them something and you want to get down to basics, they say, I, I, I don't need the basics, just let me get at it. I mean, you could be teaching them how to fish and before you, you, you hand them the, the pole, you say, look, I want to teach you a few things about fishing here. You've never done this before, so I need to teach you about the bail arm, and I want you to understand how the, 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 the drag adjustment works and the reel works. You need to understand. They say, no, 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 no. Just I've seen this on TV, man. Give me that pole. And they begin to try to cast the line. And while they're looking for where their hook and the worm went, you laugh because you know it's, it's in their back. They, they didn't care to understand the basics before running on the head. Even more scary is when someone has this attitude about driving. I don't need to know the basics of driving. Just give me the keys. Let's go. And most scary of all is when someone does this with cooking. You know this. It is scary when someone says, I don't need the directions. I don't need to understand the difference between tablespoon and teaspoon. Just, just let me throw the stuff in there and we'll get going. It can be very scary. But friends, if grasping how the basics and foundations work of fishing or driving a car or cooking a meal, if we would spend time to learn those well, why would we assume that it is any different when it comes down to what it means to be a disciple? Wouldn't that be foundational to us to spiritually ask, what is it that is most central to us as followers of Christ? And when you come to what is central about being a disciple of Christ— We don't want to assume or ignore what should be foundational. And that, friends, is the issue of love. It is love that is so foundational. Christian disciples are to be marked by love. 
love for God and love for our neighbors, for each other here. It is so foundational that if you skip over this and just say, yeah, yeah, I got it. I know what it means to follow Jesus. I know what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just let me get at it. If you skip over this need for love, then you miss the very heart of Christianity. Christian love can be tricky to to define, but let me take a weak stab at it here this morning with you. I'd say to have Christian love is to cherish, to take pleasure in the one whom you have affection for. At the same time, it is to truly care for someone in a sacrificial way. And this type of love that we see in the scripture is to be directed not just up, but it is to be directed out towards God, but then also towards one another right here. The two are interlinked. They are bound together. To love up properly means you will love out. And you cannot truly love your neighbors well if you don't truly love God correctly. They are intertwined, which is why Jesus does not just stick with loving God. When he's asked what is the most central, he says to love God. But then he adds on the secondary to love your neighbor as yourself. So again, just I want you to hear these words again. Look at verse 29 with me, where Jesus answers. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and all of your strength. That is, in other words, with everything you've got. We love, the, we love God. And the second, verse 31, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so here Jesus gives us what is called the Shema, which is in Hebrew means to hear. Hear, O Israel. You know that word? Hear, O Israel. And this was repeated in morning and repeated in the evening there. So this was something that was said over and over. Hear, O Israel. And he affirms the view that is held by the Jews, that God is one. This is important because the Romans did not have it right. The Romans believed there are many gods. And the role of us is to appease each of these gods. So you want to appease the God of farming. You want to appease the God of the sun. You want to appease the God of the rain. You really want to appease the God of rain in July when it's raining and sprinkling in July. But Jesus says, no, 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 it doesn't work this way. There is only one God. There is one. Interesting, what may have been happening here is the scribe has shown up. The scribe's going, hey, you know what? I, I, would, like to, uh, I would like to check out this Jesus guy. I want to make sure... Jesus is orthodox. I want to make sure that he is on track. And so it's interesting here that he shows up to see if Jesus is legitimate, to see if Jesus is truly in the kingdom. And and then we see this, tables have sort of turned. Look at verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then this is key in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, Jesus makes this striking statement here. You scribe, you, yeah, you. You're close, eh, but you're not in. You're close, but you're not in. Now, wait a tick. 
if there ever was an assumption of who should be in the kingdom of God, it's this guy right here, the scribe. This lawyer, this one who knew the Bible forwards and backwards, he should have been in. Scribes were like Bible lawyers who copied and memorized and knew forwards and backwards the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So the scribe would have been thinking at this moment, huh, I thought I was in, I'm the scribe, I work at the temple, people honor me, aren't I in? Jesus says, you're close, but you're not in. And remember, friends, a miss is as good as a mile when it comes to the kingdom of God. And this brings us to the alarming reality to us here this morning that we, like this scribe, we could be close, could be right up into the kingdom, right up against the gate, right up against the door, and not in. This is alarming to us. We could assume that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. We could be really, really, really close and yet not truly be in. We know of other passages where people, you know, they, they die and they finally meet the Lord for judgment and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Didn't we do many miracles and mighty works in your name? And, and, and Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know. I don't even know you. And so in a group in this size, it is a reality that there may be some here this morning who say, I'm in. But if Jesus were here, he may say to you, you're close, but you're not in. For it is possible to come to church for years or decades. It's possible to sing all the songs, to read the scriptures, and to know them very well, like this scribe knows them very well, and yet sit on the porch of the kingdom, but not actually be in the kingdom. Christianity, friends, is founded on love. And you can know this. You can know all sorts of things. Like Christianity is founded on love. Love for God, love for others. And you could attempt to love God here and there. And you could attempt to love others and yet perhaps just be sitting on the porch, rocking in the rocking chair, but not really truly in the kingdom. And so then here's the question. Let's get down to brass tacks. How do we get in? More importantly, how do I know that I am in the kingdom? How do I know? Well, first... You have to back out and see where our assurance is not located. Um, we here, and perhaps you've had the conversation where someone says, you know, all we really need to do, I'm glad that you're a Christian, I'm glad that you do this Jesus thing, but, you know, really at the end of the day, I, I think I'm on track with you guys because it's just about love. At the end of the day, you know, we just need to be loving. God approves of those who are loving, and God can't stand people who are bigoted or closed-minded. Um, Bob, Bob Marley has a son, Ziggy Marley, who, who has done a lot of reggae, and, and he says the, and puts it this way in his song where he says, oh, love is my religion. Love is my religion. You can take it or leave it. You don't have to believe it. Well, I'm done searching now. I found what this life is worth. Yeah, not in the books did I find, but by searching my mind, yeah, love is my religion. So when someone says, love is my religion, we should respond with, you're close, but you're not in. Our assurance, friends, cannot be located in love. And I would argue, yes, that love and genuine love is central. But friends, love is the byproduct of what ultimately gets us in. And this is why I want you to be very clear. Do not confuse the roots with the fruits of Christian life. Uh, the fruit is love. 
But don't confuse that with what brings us true, genuine love. The the roots are the fruit of a changed heart through Christ. Christ will become even more central than the love piece. See how this works here. Jesus is raising the question that is key for getting into the kingdom. He's raising the question about his very identity and the purposes of the Messiah. And so Jesus then, after this great commandment in verse 34, where he begins to raise this question, this is not for now we're turning to something completely different. Jesus is in line with what is the greatest commandment? It's important that you love God, but it's important that you love the true God, the one who's revealed himself to you. And how do you know who he is? This is why we turn to the identity piece. And so he raises this question here. And as he does so, he then quotes from Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted 34 times, and I believe it's alluded to at least a few other times. It's really crucial, uh, a crucial, crucial uh, psalm. And I want you to hear this section here in 35 and through 37, where Jesus raises a question now for the scribe and for others listening in. As, Je- as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is it he is his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, you have to understand, um, if you're approaching this passage for the first time, I could understand if you were here with us this morning going, This is kind of fancy and I'm not quite sure what Jesus is driving at. This is kind of confusing. Okay, can you just, let, let's back out and say it as simply as this. Fathers do not call their sons Lord. Now you could imagine a son calling his father Lord. That would make more sense. But for a father to call his son Lord, that doesn't make sense. So then Jesus is raising the question, how is it, why is it that King David is calling his son Lord? This is strange. And the only logical conclusion is this, that the son of King David, his son, must be more than just a son. This one to come from David must be divine if he calls him Lord. And if you go back and you read Psalm 110, and and we will later, um, it's about a ruling king who will shatter all of his enemies, sparing none. And this coming one is also called an eternal priest to all. This can only be fulfilled, friends, by God himself. And so, therefore, David's son must also be David's Lord. The Lord God, Jesus, the Christ King. And this is why we just sung those very rich lyrics. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name, for my God is the ancient of days. Friends, in order to make it into the kingdom, you need to see the identity of Jesus. He is the ancient of days, the king. And if I can rewind to what is central and basic for the Christian disciple and how it connects then with this Davidic son, it brings us back to the need to be inwardly and outwardly loving. And I think we can all be rather lame at times at this. You just think with me for a moment here. 
We desire to be loving. At times you can go, yes, I was loving here. I was loving there. But even outwardly, from an outward perspective, aren't there times where you go, yeah, that was not the most loving thing to say. Yeah, that was not the most loving thing to do. I should not have treated my spouse that way. I shouldn't have responded to a fellow brother or sister that way. Um, you know, our loving actions at times, even on the outward, sometimes can be kind of lame. So then, if that's true on the outside, how much more is it true for your very heart, where we're always struggling with ill thoughts, or always struggling with temptations, and always struggling with things that are not loving? How fickle we can be at loving holistically from the whole being. In other words, from all of our mind and our soul and our heart and our strength. And if our hearts prevent us from fulfilling what is the most basic principle for being a Christian, what hope is there for you and for me to make it past the doors, make it past the porch, make it past the gate into the kingdom? We can acknowledge that loving God and loving neighbor is essential, but when we fail to do it, are you not and I just like this scribe? Not far, not far from the kingdom, but not in either. Friends, you want to truly be in the kingdom and not on the porch? Then hear Jesus as he said at the very beginning of this gospel of Mark. Repent and believe the good news. Not the bad news. Repent and believe good news that the kingdom has come in Christ, the son of David. If you want to ensure that you're not on the outside of the gate of the kingdom, then hear and believe Jesus, the son of David, when he says, your real issue is your sin in your heart and your outward external actions, and I've come here to deal with them. So you hear Jesus when he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. Also, this Lord that King David casts his hope in is the Lord that we cast all of our doubts, all of our fears, all of our deepest questions are to be cast on him, recalling his miracles before the disciples, where he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Friends, don't travel. Don't travel all the way through life, all the way to just get up to the gate of the kingdom, to get up to the porch and just sit there thinking that you're in, but you're not really in. What a tragedy it would be to live your entire life in such a way to think that you're in, but not truly be in because you never really wrestled with this king, this Jesus who has the power to forgive For it is really possible to be near the kingdom and not in the kingdom. To be in the kingdom is not only to love God, but to love the son of David, who is not only his son, but his Lord. And now we're going to turn and we are seeing that to love God rightly is to love others, not by merely showy outward actions, but with all we've got from the heart. And this is where I believe that Mark wants to, to see two contrasting versions of loving that are being lived out. Now, this first picture that Jesus paints is a love that is external and showy, but is truly absent from the heart. I don't believe it's any accident here at this point that Jesus is saying, beware the scribes. Remember who he was just talking to was a scribe. And so the scribe comes and he's asking this genuine question. What is most central and basic to Christian living? And then Jesus answers, but then he says, watch out 
that you not be like this scribe who was outward and showy, maybe at the gate of the kingdom, but not in. Because he says they love all right, but they love to be recognized, to receive the accolades, to be honored, to be made much of. He says even in their long prayers, uh, for pretense, or another way we might say that is in their long praying, it's just pretend. They don't really have a true heart that longs for God. And so their prayers are really simply for show. And even worse, they enter widows' homes and are merely there for their own gain, to take advantage of these widows, the very people that they should be bringing help to, the very people that they should be coming to encourage and support and lift up are the very people that they've come to rob and devour. Jesus warns us, watch out for this. And Jesus shows us that he sees right through this sort of thing. Some of the scribes have neither truly loved God nor their neighbor, and therefore their prayers are in vain, and they've shut themselves out from the kingdom altogether. So beware of the scribes who love. Oh yes, they love, they love, they love. But they don't love God. They don't love others. They just simply love themselves. And ask yourself then, church, is church on the mountain the kind of place where if someone came into our midst new here, would they sense in us? These are people who love themselves like this scribe. These are people who love showy outward things. They, they, they make uh, for pretense and pretend. They do all of this for attention. Or would a new visitor come in here and say, here's a group of people who make no pretend. They genuinely loved me more than about where, I, where they sat or where I sat. And they were about welcoming, welcoming me in. It didn't matter about my past. This is a group here of pardoned rebels who look increasingly like God. Holy, loving, and united. Let me suggest a few other ways this passage may land on us. When people in the workplace or on social media or very literally our neighbors next door, when they think of you, do they think, here's a person marked by love? Or do they they seem like a people who only desire to be right Are we a people that others would say, you know, they sure stand on truth. They don't waver on truth, but I'm always willing to hear them out because they, I can tell that they truly care about me, that they truly do love me, even if I disagree with them. And so I'm always willing to have another conversation. I'm always willing to, to bring over food to them or care for them because I know that they genuinely love me. Well then, If the scribes represent those who fail to truly love, then we see a positive example here of the widow's offering. Notice the widow in the first example was the one whom the scribe should have been coming to to encourage and care for, but the scribe comes to devour, to rob. And here the widow uh, is interesting. She is, in this case, is coming up to offer her last two copper coins. Friends, this may be, it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to parse this out. It, this may be like four or five dollars worth of today's money with a rate of inflation, who knows, maybe two bucks, but uh, it, it's hard to say for sure, but it's somewhere in that range. It wasn't much. And I, and I think that's part of the point. In contrast to the scribe who was showy and flashy with everything, this woman was the opposite. She has nothing showy. It was underwhelming, but it caught Jesus's attention and it caught his heart. See again in verses 33 or 43 and 44, sorry. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, 
I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel Transformation Bible puts it this way. Her devotion also indicates complete dependence on God. She gives all that she has, expecting him to provide all that she needs. I think we're right back here then to the question about how is one in the kingdom? It's not by how much we're putting in, friends. It's by the mercy and grace of God. Not by how much you pay, not by how much you tithe, but a heart that is totally dependent upon God and his grace and therefore loves God like this woman with true devotion, giving him her all. I think the striking thing is that God is not looking at the same thing that we're looking at. We look at the total dollar amount. We look at the length of the prayer, the way people dress, the place that they're seated, the honor, the accolades that are given. And we miss, friends, when we do that, we miss what is central. To love with all that we've got. Because God has loved us with all that he has. This past week, I was reading up on this article about uh, these this couple who moved out to British Columbia and horsefly. I mean, this is a very, very rural area. They're way out there in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this couple, are, they're banjo makers. And they make these most, the, the most immaculate, beautiful banjos. I know you guys don't care about banjos, but I'm telling you this anyways. I, they, 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 they made the most beautiful banjos you've ever seen. Everything is ornate and handcrafted and immaculate. And and it's and you can see why they have a five-year waiting list to buy one of their banjos. Their banjos sell for the price of a car. Um, and and so back in 2016, when they moved out to Horsefly, way out in the rural area, there they they built up this shop where they could work on these banjos and take their time putting in all the craftsmanship into it. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, back in 2016, they woke up one morning, and their shop was ablaze. And it said the wife, Ferris, she grabs up her baby. She has her baby in one arm and she runs out there and grabs a hose and she puts it on and she's trying to douse the flames of the shop. And meanwhile, the husband, he, he gets into the cars and he's backing the cars away because they were literally melting at this point. And, and it was a complete tragedy because they lost all these banjos that they had been working on, poured in months of time into, that they were getting ready for shipment. And not only that, they lost all but two of their own personal instruments. Everything was lost because at some point the fire knocked out the power, which knocked out the pump to the water. And so they just sat and watched all their hard work go up in flames. Uh, Ferris, uh, the wife, she says, it would have been better if the house had been burned, honestly. All of our stuff was in the shop. Our livelihood was in the shop. But when the ashes grew cold, people came rushing to their aid. The architect who had designed their house offered to design a new shop free of charge. Friends showed up and helped them rebuild and didn't leave for months. A stranger in Germany sent them $500 out of the blue And it offered a lesson in gratitude, she says, that they both still speak of. She says it this way, no matter what, every time we turned around, someone was giving us a little piece of themselves. And that's crazy to receive. 
I, I wish for every single person not to experience the fire, but to experience the feeling of being given so much just knowing that you don't have anything to give in return. I think, friends, that's the heart of this woman. This woman shows up knowing God has given her so much. He has loved her perfectly. And she's going, I have nothing to give in return. She opens up her purse and she sees a crinkled up $5 bill and that's it. She says, okay, Lord, it's yours. But also, right in there, I think we have a picture of the gospel as well. A God who, like this woman, gave his all. Jesus shows up and he doesn't say, I'm just going to give, I'm not, I'm just going to give 10% of my blood. I'll just give 10% of my body to these people. No friends, Jesus shows up and he says, I'm going to give it all. I'm looking at what I've got. I've gotten, and he doesn't just give two copper coins. He doesn't just send us $500 from Germany. Friends, Jesus shows up and he gives us himself. He gives us his very life. He pays it all. So that we could experience being given so much. Not like Ferris who says, I wish for every single person not to experience the fire, but to experience a feeling of being given so much, just knowing that you don't have anything to give in return. In Jesus, friends, we have exactly that. We've been given grace. We've been forgiven forgiveness of our sin. We've been given a people, a kingdom to belong to, and a future with this king, the son of King David, who even while we love him and love others imperfectly, and we do. We, through Christ, have been loved perfectly. I just would like to close out this morning with the reading from Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to catch as I read through the, the first uh, 10 verses here. See how much he loved us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me? Father, we can get caught up in the peripheral of our faith at times. We can lose sight of what is the main thing. Again, we ask this morning that you would drive us towards what is central. That at the very root of being a disciple is trusting in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that that work would permeate itself to the fruit of our hands and our mouths and our hearts as we love you and we love each other well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.